The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, March the 23rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. On today's podcast, I'm joined by political editor Pat Leahy and political correspondent Jennifer Bray to discuss Taoiseach Michal Martin's COVID-enforced isolation in Washington, D.C., the current state of the government parties and the wider economic and political challenges which the war in Ukraine poses. Just to say that we had a minor audio issue with today's podcast, but hopefully that doesn't affect the conversation too much. Pat and Jennifer, good morning to you both. Good morning. Top of the morning to you, Hugh. I see neither of you have got over um, Pat's trip to uh, America for St. Patrick's Day uh, last week. Pat, how did it all go? Well, to be clear, I mean, it wasn't really my trip to Washington for St. Patrick's Day. I was covering the Taoiseach's trip to St. Uh, St. Patrick's Day. But perhaps it might be better if I went because I didn't get COVID, unlike the Taoiseach, who... Uh, as everybody would be aware at this stage, uh, got a positive test on Wednesday night and was whisked away from the gala dinner of the Ireland Funds at the National Building Museum, where he'd been cozying up to Nancy Pelosi at the, uh, at the table while listening uh, to speech by President Biden. He was whisked away and into isolation, first his hotel and then at Blair House, the presidential guest house, where he still remains. Well, he still remains in Washington. I gather he's in the ambassador's residence there at the moment where he's been isolating for the last week, though he was due to come out of isolation yesterday and will make a decision today, Wednesday, we are being told about whether he can attend the summit, uh, the EU summit, which begins in Brussels tomorrow and continues on Friday, which event is also to be addressed by uh, the US President Joe Biden, who's making a um, hastily arranged trip to Brussels to talk to EU leaders and to NATO leaders about the crisis in Ukraine. I suppose because the entire leadership of the United States these days is by definition at risk from COVID because it's all incredibly old, um, there must have been some nervousness about uh, having a, a super potential super spreader like Mio Martin talking about the place last week. Well, only, I suppose, subsequent to his test, though, you know, he was, uh, Nancy Pelosi was certainly asked about it at her morning press conference on Thursday, and she uh, evinced no great concern about it. She pointed out that she's tested so often nowadays that, uh, you know, that it, I guess it would be picked up fairly quickly. She's tested so often because she uh, meets the president, of course, on a very regular basis. And everybody who meets the president must get a test before uh, beforehand, which is how uh, Michal Martin's COVID infection was picked up. I was over there, as you mentioned, as part of the Irish press corps covering the visit and we were all required to present ourselves for testing at five o'clock on the Wednesday evening, the night uh, before we were supposed to cover Mr. Martin's visit to the Oval Office, that was all done by the uh, by White House officials, and it was that round of testing that picked up the the Taoiseach's, uh infection. The general point that you make is, of course, true that uh, you know when your political leadership is bordering on gerontocracy, then uh, I suppose your extra, you know, your extra 
cautious about COVID. And, um, uh, and one of the results of that was, of course, the uh, entire Irish press corps was designated as a close, as close contacts of the Taoiseach. So we were all excluded from the White House on St. Patrick's Day, um, uh, as well. But, uh, but fear not, the country was ably, uh, represented by a number of parliamentarians, uh, who had also traveled over for the event and were not Mirabile Dictu designated as close contacts. So, uh, so that part of the program went ahead. Yeah, it must have given Michael Martin great reassurance that Mary Lou Macdonald was there to wave the green flag um, on the deck. Just one question on this, Pat, before we move on. I mean, there are lots of column inches and airtime expended on the fact that Ireland gets an extraordinary profile in the capital of the most powerful country in the world every year at this point in mid-March, and perhaps it's, it's undervalued. And I, I have to confess myself, because there's a kind of a there's a kind of cringy factor to the whole thing when I when I'm observing it from here, and that's even when Bono doesn't write a poem. That um, that, that that I do wonder whether this is just all green beer and nonsense. Is it more than that? Well, there's certainly a fair bit of green beer and nonsense, and lots of touralooralu that uh, that that goes on. In a way, though, that's the kind of idiom of Irish America, and. Whatever you may say about that, there's no denying the political power of Irish America, which has been an awesome political machine um, in the history of, of, of the United States, is, I, I guess, is in the process of evolving into something slightly different, but still wields enormous clout. And, you know, people ask the justified question, well, look, is it all just a whole load of junkets for, uh, for, for politicians? What actually comes out of it? But, you know, last Thursday on, on St. Patrick's Day, aside altogether from the, the Oval Office meeting and the Speaker's lunch and then the later reception in, uh, in the White House, which demonstrate the access that uh, the Irish political leadership has uh, to the very top of the uh, uh, American political leadership. And in passing, one might note that that is the envy, not just of similar-sized countries in the US, but of much bigger countries. And I think the Irish, um, you know, the Irish have traditionally in Washington taken great pleasure, not just in their own access, but of, say, British jealousy about the level of, of access and clout that they have there. But it's, you know, it's not just all an inchoate idea of, you know, access and clout and thing, things like that. It has real world consequences. Last Thursday, two senators retabled a bill that um was when was at congress in in uh, during the last session but didn't get on the statute books which I mean, we won't go into the technical details of it but which would have the effect of uh, of of generating somewhere in the region of you know 5000 or so extra visas for america for irish people to go to america every year. So that's something that has, you know, a real kind of concrete effect on people's lives. You know, you pull back the lens a little bit and you look at US involvement in the peace process since the very early days, uh, which is, you know, a product of Irish American clout and which has worked, you know, very much, I think, for the uh, for the benefit uh, of the peace process and very uh, and very, in a very tangible way, to the benefit of the people on the island, um, north and south. So while there's a lot of 
while there's a you know a lot of paddywhackery for sure, um, there are real world benefits, tangible benefits to the people of this country from that closeness of that relationship. And uh, you know, I think it would be a very peculiar decision for the Irish government to you know let that relationship wither. No, I think I think that's certainly most unlikely, and it also forms a kind of a a calendar benchmark, Jen, in the lifetime of every government, that there's a number of opportunities. And poor old Micheál Martin, you know, I, I don't know if it's tragic or tragicomic, you know, that this was, after the last couple of years when nobody was travelling anywhere, this was his moment, this was his chance to present the bowl of shamrock in the Oval Office and he didn't get it. In a way, it's kind of symptomatic of, of Micheál Martin's very interesting career trajectory. And I was just thinking of that and I was thinking of the extensive piece which you wrote at the weekend, which is about, I suppose, a midterm report on the current state of the three government parties. And and Micheál Martin is kind of on a, on a rise and on a high a bit at the moment, isn't he? Yeah, um, I think that's fair enough to say. I think um, if you remember this time last year and when we were coming into the start of the vaccination campaign, that there were uh, there were a lot of mutterings, there was whisperings that if the vaccination campaign wasn't successful and if it, the government didn't handle it competently, then it would reflect very poorly upon Micheál Martin in particular and that it would cast his leadership um, into a different light and basically that uh, that conversation would have to be had sooner rather than later uh, about a successor. I think that obviously the vaccination campaign was very successful in terms of uptake um, and people within Fianna Fáil that I've talked to uh, both generally and also for the piece of the weekend um, seem to be saying basically the same thing that th- those threats uh, by and large are receding at the moment and that even within his own party, obviously he has some very strong detractors, even amongst that group that he is viewed to uh, have done well on the kind of big ticket issues, the kind of controversies that are outside of the government's control, such as the handling of the pandemic, but also now the handling of the war crisis response um, to the situation in the Ukraine. And actually, it's it's quite the it's quite the turnaround for him to have gone from a position where he started out as Taoiseach really quite weak. Um, if you remember the first couple of weeks, uh, there was just constant infighting. Well, actually, it was outfighting. Everybody knew about it. It was in the papers and on the airwaves about his choices uh, a cabinet. And it was a really rocky couple of weeks and it was a, a difficult time to take up that that role, you know, when the pandemic was coming into a new and, and even more dangerous phase. And you would have to feel for him in a way last week that he didn't get to have his meeting. It's kind of the, I wouldn't say the easiest day. Well, it is actually. It's it's the handiest day. It's 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 guaranteed good headlines unless you're Leo Varadkar and you give a speech about helping Donald Trump out with some planning applications, <laughs> um, which happened a couple of years ago. So yeah, I think by and large, the, those threats to his leadership, poverty, he's, he's, he's viewed within the party as doing, as doing a relatively good job and a very good job in certain instances. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that we previously talked on this podcast about the changeover, when that might happen. I think we talked about it in the Ask Me Anything at Christmas. There was kind of this belief that maybe come the end of this year, when the changeover of Taoiseach is due to happen for the first time, that that conversation would be had in Fianna Fáil. But now it actually looks like he will take up the role of Tánaiste and that that conversation might actually be a couple of years down the road. Now, look, things can change really quickly, as we know. But as things stand right now, he looks... 
uh, he looks to be in a safe position. I have to say, I'm surprised to hear that. Not that he's in a safe position. I think there's probably a number of factors con- contributing to that, including, you know, his own his own performance over the last few months. But, though, and indeed, we have talked about this in this podcast before, though, of course, he has to say that he will be continuing for indefinitely uh, and has no intention of stepping down um, once he's no longer Taoiseach. There has been underlying all of that. Hasn't there been a sense that essentially that he will and that he's not going to lead Fianna Fáil into another election? And if he's not going to do that, well, then he needs to step aside and make some space for whoever is going to do that in time. Yeah, I mean, that that has been the kind of underlying assumption. But that gives rise to the obvious question of who is his successor? Who in the party right now is are, are priming themselves, you know, for this job? Who's out on the airwaves making an impression? You know, who's standing out above all the rest as the candidate? And I have to say, right now, nobody. Um, and I don't know whether that's a deliberate thing not to undermine his leadership during kind of very tricky moments, like what we've what we're experiencing now in terms of inflation, in terms of uh, the war, in terms of the pandemic. Um, or whether it's just that those convers or whether it's just that there isn't a candidate right now who is thinking that far ahead. Like you know that obviously in the last couple of years people have talked about Jim O'Callaghan as a potential future future leader, but he has, as far as I can see, actually been quite quiet um recently, uh, for for somebody who is supposedly very strongly considering a bit of the leadership now. Of course, people will buy their time and people will wait for the right moment. Nobody is gonna strike in a moment when Nihon when the leader looks strong. I mean, that just wouldn't be politically very savvy. But when people, and actually polls as well, you know, look at the future leadership of Fianna Fáil, it's very much an open question. I think people like Michael McGrath seem to be kind of emerging in a very strong position, perhaps because of the steady hand that he has in government in terms of finance uh, and, and public expenditure. But by and large, that that conversation, at least out in the open, and as far as I can see privately, isn't happening about because actually when I talked to Fianna Fallers this time last year they had you know they were totting up figures of who could get support over somebody else it's not that case it's not the case right now that that's happening unless they're keeping it you know Labour style Alan Kelly quiet other other than that I I don't see it which would be a uh, just to say if they were keeping it Labour style Alan Kelly quiet uh, that would certainly be a reversal of their previous approach to these matters yeah. Although I gather that the fact that Mark Macherry isn't in the parliamentary party anymore uh, means that there isn't quite the blow-by-blow accounts happening that, that there were previously. Of PPs? Which is one, one of the reasons why the Leinster House press corps is so anxious for a return to the fold uh, by Mark. I, I think, you know, just just to, to, to add a couple of things to what uh, what what Jen says is that you, you know you're you're right. I don't I think very few people in the party uh, expect that Michal Martin will lead them into the next election. But it is certainly true that his position now as leader is stronger than it has been for some years. And I, I, I think he has, in recent months, I suppose due to the, uh, you know, due to the drawing back of pandemic restrictions and so forth and the feeling in the country that they've, you know, we have got through this. Um, but also, I, I, I think, you know, people have been impressed with, and you see this in his leadership uh, ratings, people have been impressed with Martin's kind of low-key, kind of almost 
ostentatiously humble handling of it. You know, they saw pictures of him queuing for his his own vaccine and that type of thing. I, I think that that played well uh, with with a lot of people. I think that what he has done at this stage in strengthening his position or the implication of him strengthening, of his position being strengthened in recent months is that it is now very unlikely that he will go at the same time or a bit before the leadership uh, or the, the leadership of the government changes next December. I mean, if you spoke to anyone in Fianna Fáil last summer, they would have expected that he would go, if not before, then certainly coincidental with the changeover in the Taoiseach's office. I think that prospect has kind of receded now. And I think what Michal Martin has done, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, is kind of bought himself the time to have more control over his own departure. But I would be surprised if his departure is, you know, delayed to the far side of uh, of the next election. One of the things that will do, of course, if, if I'm right about that, is that it will give him more, uh, it would give him more influence over the choice of his successor should he, uh, you know, should should he choose to exercise that. I would caution one thing. I mean, having you know, having written about this, you know, about the strengthening of Michal Martin's position, I would caution one thing, however, to say that when the changeover happens, then the picture will change and probably change quite quickly because the authority that he currently wields because of his occupancy of the Taoiseach's office and his performance in it, that will ebb away from him pretty quickly. So I think this time next year, we will be watching that picture that we've just described change fairly quickly. Now, of course, that, this government is going to has really serious problems, which it is currently facing and are likely to worsen over the next while. We're going to talk about those uh, before we finish the podcast. But, but before we turn to those, Jen, I did want to ask you about another point which you make very cogently in, in, in that piece, which is about the, the challenges that face, uh, I think, Fine Gael in particular, with questions of a reshuffle, which is inevitably going to happen as part of this ro- rotating Taoiseach issue. And reshuffles, as we always know, are you know danger here, moments for uh, for party political leaders uh, in Ireland. And this one might be particularly tricky. There's a kind of game of musical chairs looming that would be very difficult not to start, you know, causing dissension in one's own ranks. But, but decisions will have to be made by who stays and who goes. Yeah, uh, and thanks for that. It's, uh, that's the great thing about print. You can appear cogent when you are not necessarily cogent. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think this reshuffle will either be really straightforward and that's it, or really, really complicated. And I know that sounds kind of obvious thing to say, but I don't see the middle ground. And the reason why is because, like you say, the the, the musical chairs element. The first thing is um, when you talk to ministers privately or their advisors or junior ministers, they do say like, what have you heard about the reshuffle and who's in and who's out? And they are talking about it and they're very, very aware of it. And they are packing the minister's diaries as full as they can with as much, you know, uh, press releases, legislation, uh, you name it. And and they're on it because they know it's a really important year in terms of how they'll be judged uh, going into going into a reshuffle. So that's the first thing to say is that there's there's a lot of kind of chatter behind the scenes, but you would expect that. Secondly, then, when you when you consider that, what I'm told by people who are kind of familiar enough with Varadkar's thinking is that he genuinely hasn't given consideration to who's in and who's out and that he'd be more likely to think about that 
and, and analyze that towards the end of the year, possibly at the end of the summer. Um, but when we get to say, I think it's December 15th, uh, when the that, that changeover is due to happen, uh, although like we've talked about in this podcast before, there is a question mark, there is a, there is anxiety about the length of time that it's taken the Garda investigation into the leap of the leak of the GP pay deal uh, to a friend of Leo Varadkar's. So, you know, putting that question aside for the moment, um, look at the musical chairs. So obviously, uh, Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin will rotate. So does that mean then that Michal Martin will take on the portfolio that Leo Varadkar has, which is the Department of Business? That would make sense and that would be the least problematic way. But some TDs and people who, you know, would have a relatively good idea of what Michal Martin is thinking said to me over the weekend or before the weekend that they could see him perhaps favouring something like the Department of Foreign Affairs um, or the Department of Higher Education. You know, he's um, talked a lot in, uh, during his career generally about the importance of of education and his, his passion therein. So obviously, if that happens, that gives a headache for Leo Varadkar because that means either moving Simon Coveney or Simon Harris. Now, Simon Harris is an interesting one because there's been loads of chatter over the years that his relationship with Leo Varadkar at times hasn't been great and sometimes it's fine and they worked well together in the pandemic, but maybe there were other tensions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I think it's it's kind of well known in politics that, that Simon Harris would have, you know, leadership ambitions. So do you keep him, you know, do you keep your enemies close, et cetera, or, or do you say someone has to go uh, if I'm if I'm shaking things up and it's going to be you? I don't think so. I could be wrong. I'm usually wrong when it comes to my crystal ball, but at this moment in time, I, I don't think so. And then if, if if you take him out of the equation and leave him where he is, then who do you drop if, if you're going to shake things up on, on the front benches? And it's a difficult one because you can't see a situation Simon Coveney uh, is taken out of, out of cabinet. Very difficult to see it in terms of pa- impossible, Pascal Donoghue. Um, and I think Heather Humphreys previously, when she first went into the job, had a, a few detractors who said, you know, she's not cut out for the job or, you know, people didn't like her her way of kind of dealing with things. But actually, I think in the last couple of years, her star has risen, particularly after she took control of the justice portfolio from Helen McEntee when she went on maternity leave. And she did an able job of that and kept a couple of plates uh, spinning in the air. And that was regarded as as, as a good thing. Um, so what I've been told overall is that the overhacker is more likely to do a shake up on the junior benches um, and perhaps an extensive one. And uh, that could take people who are on the back benches now, maybe who are constantly out to bat for the party on the radio and doing those difficult jobs and put them in higher positions with the promise of potentially more in the future. And then on the Fianna Fáil side, everybody seems to expect that everybody will remain in place. And it's so funny when you talk to people about Stephen Donnelly, you wouldn't believe the amount of people who say to me, there's a written agreement between him and Michal Martin. They have it down in writing. He's going nowhere. But there's just absolutely no evidence of a written agreement. And if there is, I would just obviously love to see it. Um, and then on the Greens, that because the Greens are obviously the smallest party, any change amongst the senior ranks in the Greens could cause them a lot of problems. Um, and I know that the ministers were in place at the moment, John Catherine Martin, Roger O'Gorman, they're very keen uh, to see out the brief. And if you take Roger O'Gorman, the, the topics, the, the things that he has to deal with in his portfolio and his ministry are very sensitive, really complicated issues, sometimes mother and baby homes. Now the issue of illegal adoptions has come back up again. Um, that is all stuff that you really do need to be across. And there's a feeling that changing things up would be a really bad idea and to stabilise the smallest party when they feel they feel they are getting things done. So that's my that's my really long winded <laughs> update on the reshuffle. 
Not at all. No, it's actually a really comprehensive overview of a subject which I know we're going to be returning to again and again, particularly when we get into autumn and these questions start start looming more more obviously. But uh, we're going to take a break now. But when we come back, we're actually going to talk about those real concrete, huge problems that will face this this government over the next while. And welcome back. I'm Hugh Linehan, still here with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray. Um, I mentioned big problems before the break. The most obvious one, I think, Pat, right now is the uh, outfall in various ways, economic, humanitarian and others, from the war in Ukraine, which is really just horrendous and shows all the signs now of just turning into this long-standing, grinding, horrendous conflict, which will have all kinds of ramifications for us all. Uh, yes. Now, I've read some pretty interesting stuff in recent days uh, about the inability of, or the purported inability of the Russian army to sustain a long uh, campaign. But um, I guess, you know, this isn't a military intelligence podcast. So uh, what we can what we can certainly say is that Ireland will be dealing with the uh, fallout, both human and economic, uh, from the uh, from the war in Ukraine for the foreseeable future. Let us not forget that inflation was running pretty high even before uh the the war and the related sanctions turbocharged it. We see the ESRI this morning saying that inflation could re- reach eight and a half percent. And you really, you know, th- that's a level not seen for twenty twenty five years. Um, uh, I, I think Jennifer wouldn't remember that, Hugh, but no doubt you do. Um, and you know, one of the iron rules of you know, economic management for central banks is that when inflation goes up, interest rates are going to go up at some stage to control it. So, you know, if you think that paying an extra, you know, 50 cents or euro for your litre of petrol or 50 cents for your loaf of bread is painful, wait until your mortgage repayments um, start uh, start start climbing as a result of interest interest rate hikes. So really, the cost of living squeeze that was an issue, a political issue, as I say before before the war, and was the sort of thing that I, one was tending to hear from politicians even throughout the second half of last year before it came onto the you know I suppose the formal political agenda. I think it's going to be a huge political issue for uh, for the foreseeable future. You throw into that the uh, the not entirely unrelated uh, housing squeeze and the continuing pressures on uh, on the health service, both because of COVID and because of the COVID backlog. And you really have a difficult domestic environment for the, for the government for the remainder of this year. One of the things that I'm just not sure how will play out, though, and I think it's difficult to... It's difficult to kind of politically war game it in a way is the effect on the public's perception of the broader political narrative that is affected by uh, by the war in Ukraine. And to simplify that, what do I mean? I mean, you know, okay, if you are watching images as we are on our television screens every night of, uh, you know, cities being bombarded and refugees streaming across the border. Does that give you a different perspective on, you know, your own difficulties dealing with the, uh, the, the cost of living? I don't know the answer to that, by the way, 
but I think it could possibly play some 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 part in how these sort of forces and pressures impact on politics. I, I think it's incredibly unpredictable, Jen, as um, as Pat points out, you're far too young to remember um, any of the previous wave of serious uh, inflation, but I'm sure you've read a bit of history uh, along the way somewhere. And we had Helen Thompson, um, the economic historian on the podcast last week, and she had some very interesting points to make about what happened with inflation in the 1970s and the way in which it led to what we came to know as Reaganism and Thatcherism, which were based on a series of assumptions about how to get the economy, quote, uh, unquote, under control. And she argues that that was actually not the correct approach, that the inflation of the 1970s was caused by a war in the Middle East, in that case, which led to a change in the energy supply, global energy supply, and a, and a huge hike in prices. And that actually that had nothing to do with things like wages in a spiral going up, first of all, in the, in, in, in the West. That's my very simplified version of what she had to say. But I suppose my, my question is that the question for government, particularly an Irish government, which doesn't really have many fiscal levers because we're part of the Eurozone, um, what can it actually do, um, apart from, I suppose, raise social welfare rates and allow for rises in wages to compensate people for an inflation of 8 or 9% per annum, which is just... I mean, I think most people can't get their head around that kind of inflation. They haven't experienced it in their life. For sure, and I think... Um I think there is an acknowledgement that more will have to be done. Exactly what that is right now is still up in the air. And I think if you if you uh, read our lead story this morning, uh, the ESRI were talking particularly about the fact that any measures that are introduced would have to be targeted because of the risk of basically making the situation worse and throwing petrol on the fire. And you're right, you know, the figures that we see this morning, you know, that the, the inflation is going to surge to 8.5% or higher, and this is a level that hasn't been seen since the early 1980s. Like, you're right, I was born in 1988. Like, I don't remember that. For God's but sake. I, <laughs> I'm not apologising for that. But um, yeah, uh, you know, my parents would have told me, obviously, how difficult it was in, in the years before that. And I think for them now, it's obviously the sense of, of, of deja vu. And if you think of everything that has happened since then in terms of, you know, Brexit, pandemic, recession bailouts, war, it's extraordinary. And now we have this on top of it all. It does kind of feel somewhat surreal sometimes. But I think the interesting thing is when you talk to people, like I was going to do a bit of digging around amongst people in the Department of Finance last week to get an idea for that piece that you're talking about, about what faces the government, you know, in the weeks ahead. And I was struck by two things. The first is the word, obviously, that keeps coming up is uncertainty. The uncertainty, like we simply don't know how bad it's going to get or how high inflation will reach or the extent of the impact that it will have on people's day to day lives. But the, the, as much as the government do know, they know it is going to be an exceptionally difficult time, if not the most difficult thing that will face the government in its entire lifetime uh, over, over a period of five years, you know, and and the fact of the matter is, like I say, day to day living is only going to get more expensive. You know, Pat mentioned mortgages. Uh, all of these things are going to come together, and it's a perfect storm. Um, and you know, there's there's a European picture. The European picture, you know, we had these rules, basically escape clause, that meant the governments could bypass budgetary frameworks in order to compensate and pay for COVID and all the costs that came up with that. They that was due to end. Uh, next year, effectively, 2023. But now it looks like because of the uncertainty and because of what's happening in Ukraine, that that might remain in place, which means that this kind of wider repair 
of public finances across the European Union won't happen at the time when we thought it would. And that's, you know, destabilizing internationally. And then at home, if you have higher inflation, if you have uh, lower growth, that puts a massive squeeze on the public finances. And we're coming into the period now where the government will start looking at kind of their summer forecasts and the forecast for the year ahead. I think we'll hear about that actually in the next week or two from the Department of Finance. And that brings us into the lead up to the budget and the pressure that will be on the government to address this, uh, you know, because we've seen the opposition say that the 200 euro energy credit is not enough uh, and that more needs to be done. Uh, Their their, um, balancing act that they have to do is to find a way to help households, but they won't be able to do everything that people will want. And that's the message that you're going to hear every single day between now and the budget, which is we will do, we will, you know, introduce targeted measures, but we will not insulate the Irish public in the same way that we did in the pandemic. Those interventionist policies are done. The taps are running dry effectively. And selling that message in the face of opposition saying you're not doing enough, more, 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 while inflation bites and lower you know, lower growth, it is, I think they're expecting a really, really rough few months. So the, the same ESRI report, Pat, does indicate that although there is some reduction in the projected growth, there's plenty of growth this year, you know. I mean, growth is going to be pretty good in Ireland, according to them, both this year and next year. And we know there's pressure on, you know, there's a demand for, for labour and for employees and there's upward pressure on wages. So it's a very interesting unprecedented is an overused word, but it is an unprecedented landscape. If, for example, you have this kind of inflation, what do you do about tax bans in the next budget? Yeah, I think uh, growth will be strong and also uh, tax government tax receipts are extraordinarily strong in the early, the early part of the year. Now, you know, that might abate a bit um, uh, over the course of the year as the effects of what we've been talking about take hold, but government finances notwithstanding the persistently high level of debt that we're running at, government finance, finances are in pretty rude good health. And that's one of the reasons why I think there will be no way around further interventions uh, for the government. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I'd be surprised if we made it uh, as far as early summer without a further round of interventions from uh, from the government, uh, which, you know, can only go some way towards mitigating the effect of inflation and rising prices and uh, and so forth. But I think it will be both um, affordable and uh, politically inevitable for the government um, to make further interventions. And meanwhile, Jen, we have yet another spike in COVID happening. But there seems to be no appetite, as far as I can see, looking at uh, the Irish Times over the last 24 hours to introduce for the moment any measures to address that. It's just a case of getting through it, apparently. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of, you know, on top of everything else, another wave of of COVID. But no, you're right. There is no appetite that I can detect as of yet to reintroduce um, any kind of restrictions. Um, the message will be kind of to, to get back to the basics. Um, I suppose there have been calls and there has been a lot of discussion around the decision to remove the mandatory wearing of, of masks. And perhaps that's an, a conversation that will go on for another couple of weeks. But, you know, I think if we if you look at the, the situation, I mean, we're not unique. This is happening all across Europe. You know, I think in the, the WHO European region, they were talking about how there's uh, increases in COVID in 18 out of the 53 countries at the moment. Um, and if you look at where we are, like we did have a near record of daily COVID cases yesterday. Um, and 
the WHO, when they were in a press conference on Monday, talked about how we brutally lifted restrictions. And what they mean by that, obviously, is that we just got rid of it all in one clean fell swoop, more or less. Um, and that that perhaps has led to this um, this increase. The feeling in government is that the reason for this, this is because of the BA2 variant, um, more transmissible than the original Omicron variant. And that's why we're seeing kind of these uh, large increases and these kind of very, very high daily figures. And that somewhere towards the end of uh, uh, this month and the early, early part of next month, that those figures will peak and then they will fall. And the, the country that government figures seem to be pointing towards and thinking about is Denmark. Um, in Denmark, the figures have been decreasing kind of consistently for around 12, 13, 14 days in a row, but they're rising elsewhere in, in Europe pretty consistently. But I think Denmark was one of the countries that had the earliest sort of uh, quickest spread of that variant that I that I talked about. Um, and it's actually interesting because they did um, a study in Denmark where they found that in and around about 70% of the adult population had contracted COVID-19 since I think it was last November. Um, you know, so they got a really, really high level of infection and reinfection. Um, and that combined with their relatively high vaccination um, figures, this is how they've managed to get to the point where the peak is dropping so rapidly. And the feeling government is that we will get to that stage too. I guess the question that is kind of unsaid, and it has always been there in the pandemic, is what is the level of risk that the government is willing to take us in? What is the level of mortality? Those kind of questions that they don't really want to address, like how far are they willing to let kind of the uh, that that picture kind of deteriorate before they do have to to step in? Um, and the other thing as well that I think they haven't addressed is, you know, obviously they they have disbanded, well, NEFET has disbanded itself effectively, but what structures are they putting in place to monitor this? So far, you know, no clear answer on that. I think sometimes we can be surprised and be, I, we can think sometimes, even as journalists, I can't believe they haven't figured this out yet, but there is really a tremendous amount of things going on. But I think obviously they're looking at that at the moment, but they, they would need to, I think, to get a bit of a, get a bit of a move on with that if we are, which we are in another wave of, of COVID-19. Yeah, finally, Pat, I mean, our, our colleague Connor Pope um, on our sister podcast, The Irish Times is in the news, um, has an has a, has a interview with uh, Dr. Gerald Barry this morning, which I'd recommend to our listeners. It's very good, although rather depressing, because it really suggests that we're now here in a, on a train of infection and reinfection and these highly transmissible subvariants of Omicron, that basically we're all going to get it, and we're all going to get it more than once, and we need to factor that into into our lives. Um, and who knows what that means for society as a whole, but it's a somewhat depressing prospect. Yeah, I didn't hear that, but um, but thanks for, for, for cheering me up uh, on that front, Hugh. Um, I, I like just kind of trying to look at it rather than from an epidemiological point of view, but rather from a political point of view, I think Jen is right. There is no appetite in government. There's no discussion as far as I can see in government. Uh, uh, within government about anything remotely approaching the uh, reintroduction of uh, of restrictions. And I, I, I find it hard to see that changing. And one of the reasons for that is that the, pu the public and therefore political tolerance of a you know, certain level of cases, a certain degree of pressure on hospitals and a certain amount of mortality is not a fixed point. So I think like that this time last year, there was much lower, you know, for lots of obvious reasons, there was uh, a much lower public tolerance for lots of people getting COVID. 
Whereas now I think there's a public tolerance for a large number of people getting COVID. Albeit that people don't talk about the fact that that implies a certain degree of mortality. Um, I, I, I just think that the public mood has has shifted. And I think that any attempt to reimpose restrictions in response to where we are now, at least, um, I, I, I find it hard to see there being, you know, the sort of universal observe, observation of, uh, of, of, of those restrictions that we saw in earlier phases of the pandemic. So in short, I think the, uh, the, the attitude at government level is, is simply to tough it out. All right, not surprising, really. We'll leave it there for today, but thanks very much to, to Pat and Jen for joining us. Thanks also to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Give us an email with your thoughts or your questions at politicspodcast.irishtimes.com. We'll be back very soon. Until then, thanks very much for listening.